0: Well, hey, everybody. It is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Honored to have you along for the ride. And before we get going today, I need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer, okay? Because you may notice that my voice is not as strong as it normally is, sort of a strained Kermit thing going on over here. And uh, you should know that the reason for that is I've been coaching my nine-year-old son Wilson's tackle football team, okay? I am the assistant to the assistant head coach. So I'm kind of the Dwight Schrute of the operation, if you're with me, yeah? And uh, I spent a couple hours early yesterday morning screaming encouragement at my team. And I'm telling you, my dudes were rolling, okay? The final score, 51 to six. Take that, Jennison third and fourth graders. After the first service, you can't make this up, there's a kid, comes up, he lives in Jenison, he plays for Jenison, and he's like, that was a beatdown, dude. I'm like, I know, right? Anyway, on to the things of the Lord. Today, we get to continue a series called Why Follow, in which we're attempting to explain why around here we're convinced that absolutely everybody... Should follow Jesus. Um, and as many of you know, I began a few weeks ago by acknowledging that in the 21st century, there are many people who can't understand why anybody would take Jesus seriously anymore. Uh, given all the harm that his followers have done in the world, after all the divisions in the church, and after all the hatred and the judgment and the hypocrisy, I and mean, even after all of those uh, questions that are raised when you honestly read the Bible and try to reconcile it with your experience in life, I mean, after all that, why follow? And so far in the series, we've already explored what I believe to be a few great answers to that question. And I made a a summary slide for those of you joining us for the first time. Uh, Why follow, number one, the resurrection, number two, the shift to horizontal, number three, journey, not just destination, and number four, everyone, everywhere. And here's what I mean by that. In week one of this series, I made the argument that the literal historical resurrection of Jesus really is ultimately the best reason to follow him. And I also noted that some of the strongest evidence for the resurrection is the existence of the Bible. Uh, like I pointed out, like without a resurrection, there would never have been a Bible because when Jesus died on the cross, all of his first followers unfollowed him. So that, that was week one. Uh, then in week two, I explored the radical shift in human religion that happened through Jesus. I mean, Prior to Jesus' arrival, ancient religions were endlessly obsessed with the vertical, Uh, Like practitioners of these ancient religions were endlessly trying to maintain health in their vertically oriented relationship with the gods. But with Jesus, everything changed. Like he taught his first followers that instead of being obsessed with maintaining peace with the gods through never ending sacrifices, he invited them to trust that he would secure peace in their relationship with the one true God once and for all. And that they could then shift their focus to maintaining peace in their horizontal relationships, the ones with other people. And I'm telling you, that idea in the ancient world was revolutionary. Uh, Then in week three, uh, Randy was up here and talked about the incredible reality that following Jesus is as much about the journey as it is about the destination. In other words, Jesus not only desires to offer us hope of a better life after this life, He offers to teach us a better way to live right here in the midst of his life as we follow his example one step at a time. And and then finally, uh, last week you were with us, um, I explored how Jesus ignored the artificial segmentation and stratification of human society and, and, and instructed his followers to love and serve everyone everywhere. And it's no exaggeration to say that that was an unprecedented and radically progressive idea in the ancient world. It actually is a radically progressive idea in our world today. Um, Okay, so now that brings us to our conversation for this weekend. And with our time together, what I want to do is unpack one of the most practical reasons I think everyone should follow Jesus. It's the promise that we can find freedom from fear. And and I'll begin by making an observation with which I think we all can agree, namely that wherever you find yourself on on the spiritual journey, um, fear, whether it's real fear or imagined fear, is something you wish you had less of in your life. And and if you think about it, fear really can be triggered by all sorts of different things. Um, I, I just thought about, I just paid attention like for the last two weeks, maybe for you it was a plunge in the stock market that all of a sudden threatened to upend your retirement plans. Uh, Maybe it was a phone call from a doctor that informed you that they found some unroutine results from your routine physical and they wanted to order some more tests. Maybe it was an email from your company that alerted you to some impending layoffs and resizings. Or or maybe you just even have kids becoming teenagers. That's like my wife and I, right? I mean, that's enough in our world, right? I mean, fears can rise from all sorts of actual life situations. But, But here's the thing. In my experience... Uh, Fear also can surface when a threat is imagined, and it can be no less debilitating. Like, we've all had those seasons when we lay in bed at night, sort of staring up at the ceiling, imagining hypothetical scenarios for our lives that are absolutely terrifying. And we've all obsessed over the worst possible outcomes of the challenges that we face. And that's why I think even imagined threats can impact our lives in real ways. Fear has a real potential to steal our joy and to steal our peace. Okay, so like that established, it should fascinate us that the authors of those first accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, record that Jesus actually commanded his first followers, like commanded them not to fear 59 times. And then the authors of the rest of the New Testament echoed that instruction another 122 times. Now, I did not actually count myself. I had better things to do. I Googled it, okay? But it's there over and over and over again. And it's strange if you think about it. I mean, the command not to fear, it's, it's, it doesn't really seem possible. Here's what I mean. Like, I don't feel like I choose to fear. So how can you command me not to fear? I, I feel like fear chooses me. And and here's the thing. I don't think I'm the only one, right? I mean, none of us have ever gotten out of bed in the morning and thought, man, I wonder what I should choose to worry about today, right? That's just not how it works. Like by the time we're done with our second cup of coffee, fears naturally rise. And so what is Jesus thinking when he commands his followers not to fear? Like, is he aware of something that many people miss? Is it possible that there's an antidote to fear, Because if there is, I would love to know what that is, and I would love you to know what that is. And here's the thing. After studying, I'm convinced that there really is an antidote to fear. And with the rest of our time today, I want to explore three scenes from the life of Jesus that I believe reveal this antidote. So let's jump right in. Uh, In the first scene, Jesus has called his 12 disciples together for what can only be described as a very confusing pep talk. You know, like the coach calls his players into a locker room and tries to encourage them for the road ahead. Um, and at this point in their lives, you should know, they'd spend a lot of time with Jesus. They'd watch Jesus. They'd learn from Jesus. They'd watch Jesus heal. They'd watch the power of God come out from his hands. And, and in this in this locker room pep talk thing, he, um, he basically says to them, okay, the time has arrived for us to divide and conquer. I want to take my message further, faster, and so I'm going to send you all out two by two. And that probably sounded just fine to them. But then he said, I'm going to send you out two by two, and you should know I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Okay, brief aside, I don't know much about the relational dynamics of sheep and wolves. I am more of a city guy, okay, which does not surprise anybody. You don't, you don't want me growing my own food. It would be a bad thing, okay? But I do know that in a fight, my money would be on the wolves. Sheep versus wolves. Wolves win every time, just saying So Jesus seems to affirm this reality by promising his disciples that they would be beaten up and arrested. Like I said, really confusing locker room pep talk. But anyway, after telling them that things will not be easy for them, Jesus says something kind of bizarre. Here's what he says. He looks at his disciples. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And, I mean, you just kind of love that, right? The disciples would have thought the same thing that you or I would have thought. Something like, are you kidding? Like, pretty much all of our fears ultimately have to do with somehow losing our lives. And what exactly do you mean when you say, kill the soul? Can we circle back on that? And and Jesus just plows right through and continues. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And they're like, he's doing it again. We ask him a real question, and he gives a weird answer, right? What are you talking about? He goes, yet not one of them will fall to the ground. Outside of your father's care. In other words, you guys know sparrows. They're like, yeah, sparrows, they're worthless. He goes, yeah, that's my point. They're worthless, but God still takes care of them. They're like, okay. And then he tells them this. And he says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Again, weird pep talk, right? But I did, I did, I tell you what, as I was writing this this week, I kept thinking, like, it is so interesting. The hairs of your head are numbered. I found myself wondering. Theoretically, is there an angel assigned to monitoring hair count, right? Is that like a a job description for some angels? And if so, due to a decreasing workload, is it possible that Randy and Paul and myself have all been assigned the same hair counting angel, right? I'm just throwing it out there, okay? It's like 17, 18, 19, and you get to have lunch. Anyway, Jesus continues. So, he says, don't be afraid— You are worth more than many sparrows. (laughs) So, again, interesting, interesting thing Jesus is saying here. He isn't telling his first disciples that there's nothing to be afraid of. He's just predicted that they're going to be beaten and arrested. What he's saying is that his followers shouldn't fear even when there is something to be afraid of because they have a heavenly father who is ultimately in Control. And, and again, this conversation, I mean, when we just drop into it, it feels like it came out of nowhere, but, but fortunately, this wasn't the first time that Jesus told his followers not to be afraid. In fact, two chapters earlier in Matthew's account, Jesus has a sort of set the stage moment with his disciples that kind of prepares them for the sheep among wolves. And, and the conversation happened while they were on a boat out on the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel. So I brought a picture. This is the Sea of Galilee. Um, and you can, most people, when they first see it, they're shocked at how small it is. I mean, it's just not a huge body of water. Significant, but not but not huge. This is the northern edge right where Capernaum, the town that Jesus called home during his life, um, was located in ancient times. But here's, here's kind of the setup. So Jesus has been teaching and healing in the village of Capernaum, and his audience has been growing because Jesus, again, the healings always drew a crowd. And so when Jesus was done with his time with the people, um, he decided that his only escape was to get on a boat and set out into the water. And, and I actually think this is why you often find Jesus teaching near the Sea of Galilee. He could always get away when he needed to. Anyway, Matthew tells us this. He says then Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. He says suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. So Matthew wants his readers to understand that this storm was unexpected. And it was significant. And actually, um, the first readers of this would, that were in Israel would have totally got that because this sort of thing happens from time to time on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, back in 2016, I was on a trip with a bunch of seminary students, and we were caught in one of these sudden storms. And it actually got so bad, I went back to check with the captain. Not that I was going to help, but I was just curious if he was doing okay. And he just awkwardly looked at me, smiled, and nodded and said, Oh, it's good, just like Jesus. But he didn't look good, okay? Okay. <laughs> He did not look good. Um, And we were in a boat that was way larger than the boats in the first century. Our boat had a dance floor on it for tourists, okay? So there you go. Um, But the boats in the first century, this is really interesting. If you visit Israel, and 43 of us are leaving on Friday for a trip from Keystone, so pray for us that we don't lose anybody anywhere on a mountainside. But anyway, if you visit Israel, you can see a boat from the time of Jesus that's on display And it's a fascinating thing to see because it's a lot smaller than you would imagine. Uh, It's roughly 24 feet long by 7 feet wide. Not huge. And and so, moreover, the geography around the Sea of Galilee lends itself to these unexpected storms. Uh, There's a ridge of mountains along the eastern shore. And what happens is cool winds blow off the hills and they displace warmer air and storms come up quickly and when that happens it can be terrifying to be on the lake and so the disciples were terrified and again Matthew was there and so he tells us that water is like coming over the bow of the boat but I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing when I was first studying this passage I mean where was Jesus during this sudden storm that is threatening everybody's life well Matthew tells us Jesus was sleeping <laughs> and I love that right Like, based on the size of the boat, I mean, like, you're looking at the first century boat, you're like, yeah, I'm not sure Jesus was sleeping, right? I actually think Jesus may have been doing what all of us dads have done from time to time. listen, and if you're a dad here, that we're going to keep this between us, don't tell the girls, okay? Here's how it goes. Kids are outside, kids come running in, they are fighting, there is some screaming. They race into the room, they see dad on couch, they all go, shh, he's sleeping, because we are pretending to sleep, right? Very effective parenting technique, and the moms do better at that anyway. So, I don't think Jesus was asleep that day. I think the whole setup was so that he could have a moment with his disciples. And so, before we move on, there's something else I want to point out here, and, and it's a connection from this story to our stories. Because, like, if you think about it, some of us have friends who've actually left the faith because they had some sort of tragedy in their life, and they didn't use the language, but but they basically thought felt like Jesus was sleeping, not paying attention in their time of need. Like they prayed and they cried out to God over and over again, but, but God didn't respond. Or at least he didn't respond in a way that they thought he should respond. And so they, they walked away from their faith. But, but I'm telling you, whenever I meet people with a story like that, and I do from time to time, always at Starbucks, you know, I, I, I always point out the same thing. I always say, you know, you're not the first person to feel this way. In fact, Jesus' disciples, the inner circle, the 12 who walked with him for three years, they felt this way. They even had an evening on the Sea of Galilee when they, 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 their life felt out of control and they were terrified. And they didn't even have to imagine Jesus might be sleeping. They like saw Jesus sleeping, right? But, but at least Jesus is still in the boat. So they took action. And Matthew tells us what they did. He says, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown and he replied, and this is gold right here, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And, you know, it's, it's like, I, think, I love Jesus' question here, like, why are you so afraid? And I always like to think, like, what would the disciples be thinking when Jesus said this? Like, so I imagine Peter, who's like the oldest disciple, he's the most impulsive disciple. I just think Jesus, but Peter might be thinking something like this. What do you mean, why? are we so afraid? Like, are you not paying attention, right? Furious storm, waves coming over the bow, uh, like bow of the boat, real potential for drowning. Dude, I grew up on this lake. I've fished this lake for years. I've lost friends on this lake during storms. So Jesus, if you can do something, do something. Now, I also love this passage because, uh, you know, Jesus suggests here that the remedy for fear in this life is actually faith. Or trust in God. Faith is like the church word, but, but trust is how we would use it in, in normal life. Like the remedy for fear is trust or, or faith in God. Because according to Jesus, fear and faith are incompatible roommates in the human heart. Like as soon as one moves in, the other one moves out. They, they are constantly pushing in and out of the human heart. And so, so Matthew continues to write. He tells us, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Which is a great question. Even the wind and waves obey him. I mean, they asked the question, Jesus seemed like he was so much more than a man because Jesus was more than a man. And and I'm telling you, the disciples never forgot what happened that day on the lake, the day that Jesus literally calmed the storms. But, but they still struggled to trust when life felt out of control. And so fortunately for them, and fortunately for us, Jesus wasn't done teaching them about how to leverage his antidote to fear. In fact, some time passes. And once again, the disciples find themselves out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. So here's the setup, again, from Matthew's account. Matthew tells us immediately, Jesus made the disciples get it in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Well, he dismissed the crowd. And I love this. Jesus made the... Do you know why Jesus had to make the disciples get into the boat? (laughs) Right. They all remembered what happened the last time they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And so what we have here is we have the same guys on the same lake, probably in the same boat, Although this time, Jesus wasn't with them. And Matthew tells us what happened with Jesus. He says, after he had dismissed them, as in the disciples get in the boat and shove off to sea, he, Jesus, went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he tells us, Jesus was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And so this time, even though there was no storm, the disciples were struggling to row into a strong wind and they had rowed for hours and weren't really getting anywhere. And you put yourself in that scenario, you're like, you'd be exhausted and you'd be frustrated at the situation and probably you'd be frustrated at Jesus because he seemed to know everything and he sent you out on the lake. So now check out what happens next. Matthew writes, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, They were terrified. It's a ghost, they replied, or they said, and cried out in fear. And and you should know that for first century Jewish teenagers, maybe early 20-somethings, this response is actually somewhat predictable. It's, It's been well documented by historians that first century Jews saw large bodies of water as gateways to the underworld. And so it would have been pretty natural for them to imagine that they were being visited by some sort of spirit creature. But as it turns out, as Matthew tells us, it was just Jesus out for an early morning stroll in the water. Like you do, right? So so the disciples cry out in fear, and Jesus says to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. In other words, guys, don't look at your situation. Look past your situation. Look to me in your situation. I want you to to trust me. I wasn't with you, but I was watching you. And one day in the not too distant future, I will not be with you, but I will still be watching you. Like if you ever feel like somebody's watching me, it's because they are because I am. And sometimes, and you got to get this, sometimes I will actually allow you to struggle in life's storms in order to teach you to trust me. Once again, and I, you got to get this, you don't have to be afraid even when there is something to fear. And friends, I'm telling you, that reality was right at the core of Jesus' message to his first followers. It was at the core. It was repeated over and over again because he knows it's that big a deal. If we can get this, it changes everything. And I'm actually convinced that for some of you, that is what Jesus wants to say to you this morning. I mean, as I was prepping, I just kept thinking, man, somebody is going to be tuning in online who was up most of the night because they are terrified of a life situation. And and if that's you, I would just invite you, take a deep breath and remind yourself that you're loved and remind yourself that Jesus has your future well under control. And instead of trying to control all of the outcomes of your life that deep down you know you can't control anyway, he invites you to surrender and to place your trust in the only one who ultimately controls outcomes. And the promise of this is just staggering because because if we can get this, even in part, we can start tapping into a resilient peace, a peace not from the storm, but a peace in the midst of the storm. Now, if I'm honest, um, it's, it's reassuring to me whenever I read the Gospels, as accounts of Jesus' life, that the disciples struggled to embrace this reality. I mean, that they struggled over and over and over again. I mean, even at the end, like at the end of his time on earth, Jesus is arrested and his disciples run away in fear. On that first Easter Sunday morning, they're locked in a room because they're afraid, Right? And like, they basically unfollow Jesus when he dies on the cross. And they were, they were scared to death. But then, and this is just so socially, sociologically fascinating. A few weeks later, the disciples emerge from hiding. And they hit the streets of Jerusalem. And they begin to proclaim the message of what God had accomplished in and through Jesus. And the thing that brought them out of hiding And the thing that made all the difference for them wasn't another boat ride or a lecture about sheep and wolves. It was the fact that they had come face to face with a resurrected Jesus. In other words, once Jesus rose from the dead, his first followers lost their fear of death. And I'm telling you, you look at the trajectory of their lives moving forward, and it's true. They were able to embody this confidence, this trust, This faith that God ultimately controlled their destinies until they could surrender worry and fear and anxiety to him. And I'm telling you, that was true for them. And when we get to that point, when we get to that point where we can begin to trust God. Now, we trust God with what happens after this life. But when we really believe that in our hearts and not just our heads, it unlocks all sorts of incredible potential to trust God with what happens in this life. And in the end, I'm telling you, that potential, even if we never get to it fully, if we just get closer to it the longer we live, that is one of the best reasons to follow Jesus, the promise of freedom from fear. Okay, so now, um, but before I let you go, we have an opportunity this morning to participate in a tradition that goes all the way back to the night Jesus was arrested. Uh, for almost 2,000 years, Christians have gathered around tables or in rooms like this, set with bread and with wine, to remember Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And then and, and they come together to celebrate the God who is with us and a God who offers us an effective antidote to the fears that arise in this life. And, and so in just a moment, uh, we're going to step into that tradition and you'll have the opportunity to go to one of the stations around the room. We'll have some in the front and in back as a way to remind yourself what Jesus accomplished the night his body was broken and his blood was spilled on the cross to ratify a new covenant between people and God. Just a, a couple of housekeeping notes. You don't have to be a member here at Keystone to participate. We don't have members in the traditional sense. And so we only ask that you have had a moment when you've personally accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for you. And if you're here with a, with a child and you're wondering, um, we trust that parents will know when, when their children are ready. So, um, Also, if you're here and you're still exploring faith, first of all, we're just honored that you're with us. Um, you're one of the reasons that Keystone started 25 years ago, to create a place where people could come and explore. So if you're not yet across the line of faith, feel free to take a pass. There is no judgment in this place whatsoever. Uh, but, but for those of you that, that have a relationship with Jesus, we, we just want to give you some time to reflect. The band's going to play a song, and then whenever you're ready, uh, you can come up to one of the communion stations and, and take the bread, dip it in the cup, and remember remember how much you're loved by your heavenly father and remember the new life that he's invited you to live, a life that increasingly is free from fear and then after the song I'll come back and I'll close our time
1: Who? Oh. You pulled me from the clay You said
0: Father, uh, this morning we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled by our freedom, and we're just overwhelmed with thanksgiving for what you've done. Not only for the promise of life after this life, but for the promise of a life free from fear, right here and right now. And so I pray for friends that came into this place and they're in a season where fear has a hold on them. I pray that they would just sense how deeply you love them and how deeply you desire to help them move to a place where they can be free from fear, even in the middle of circumstances that are fearful. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that promise. Most of all, in this place, we thank you for Jesus, the light that came into our darkness to bring us hope and a message we are loved more than we can imagine by our Heavenly Father. And so we thank you, and we bless you, and we celebrate you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Friends, if you came in today and you'd like to speak to someone or have someone pray with you, we have some volunteers that'll be right under the screen. Um, Otherwise, for the rest of you, grace and peace. We'll see you next week.